0: Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, As Benjamin said, my name is Nate Phillips, and um, I moved here in July uh, from Kansas City, Missouri, where I was attending seminary at Midwestern Seminary. We're all graduate with my MDiv in two weeks. Um, It's been a six and a half year long process for education. I can't wait to be done with it. But I'm excited to jump uh, in with you guys and just to spend the next couple years learning what it means to be a pastor, to be a shepherd of a local flock. And so. Um, thank you guys for so being so willing to um, allow me to come in and uh, allow me to be an inexperienced preacher before you guys today. I will let you know that um, I I can tend to be a quick speaker, and uh, in the first service I was informed that I spoke quite quickly, and I told Benjamin this, and Benjamin said that um, well, he should have been there on Tuesday, because apparently I was even faster on Tuesday. So maybe today, or this service, I'll be the perfect speed. But I apologize ahead in advance if I talk quite fast, so... Um, but tomorrow morning, we're going to be in Job 19. Um, and before we jump into the passage, just a little bit of background info. Job 18 is Bill uh, Bildad, one of Job's three friends, has just spoken to Job. And Bildad has told uh, Job that God punishes the wicked. And Bildad's absolutely correct. God does punish the wicked, uh, whether this happens here on earth or when it happens in death when they stand before the judge. The wicked will be punished. But where Bildad goes wrong in chapter 18 is Job is not wicked. And Job knows this. And that is where the response comes in chapter 19. So we're going to read Job 19, 1 through 27 together. I'll pray and then we'll jump right in. All right. Job 19 starting in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and close his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths." He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come together and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O oh you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? O oh, that my words were written, O oh, that they were inscribed in a book, O oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. whom I I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God when you pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us about a man who lived thousands of years ago, who suffered in the same ways that we often endure suffering, who distrusted you in the ways that we often distrust you. And thank you that uh, you've shown this to us and that in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that uncertainty, there is hope. Hope in you and you alone. I ask that we would see that this morning. That uh, you would be uh, made big and that you would come and help me speak to you and speak to them. um, God, so thank you for your word to us. So I pray, amen. All right. So we've finished Job. We spent the last nine weeks traveling through the book of Job, and last week Jason preached the final few chapters of Job. And so now we're jumping back right into the middle of Job in chapter 19. So I could tell you that we're back in chapter 19 because Jason and Benjamin told me that's what I was going to preach on today, or I could tell you we're coming back to chapter 19 because of the message of chapter 19. The message that when we read these verses, we are forced to ask a very specific question about Job and about ourselves. So when I first started talking to Benjamin about this passage, uh, Benjamin told me that I should have nine sermons, nine gospel-filled, Jesus-focused sermons, on which to write my sermon based off of. And he's absolutely correct. We spent nine weeks, nine weeks going through the book of Job, pointing each other to the person of Jesus. So last week, at the end of the book, Jason preached on Job and how Job came to the realization that he not just knew about God in his mind, but now he had seen God with his eyes. And so that's a beautiful thing, to move from not just knowing about God, but to seeing God with our eyes. One cannot be uh, experience the grace of God and not be changed, and so that's what we hear, have here in chapter 19, is Job, I believe, coming to the realization that first, suffering is really hard, but second, he has a Redeemer, and that Redeemer lives. We know that Job has not only experienced the pain of losing his kids, his wealth, his health, and other physical blessings, but Job has also experienced the pain of uh, friends making false accusations those closest to him have turned on him and blamed him for something that he did not bring upon himself. So he has faced this, the words of his closest friends, turning against him in a fashion that he is not worthy of. In addition to this, Job is convinced that God has reached out his hand towards him and seeks to bring him down completely. So Job, as we will see, believes that he is not far, not far from the reality of death. And at this point, the question of Job is not whether the righteous don't suffer or will suffer. Is God an all-powerful God or is God a good God? Rather, the question of Job is, is God enough for Job and is God enough for you and me? So I ask you, is God enough for you when your kid dies? Is God enough for you when you lose your health, when you lose your job? Is God enough for you when your friends abandon you? Is God enough for you when your wife leaves you? Is God enough when the life that you thought was good, was protected, was privileged, and was all you ever wanted? Is God enough when that life is all of a sudden taken away from you? So will you stand there and choose to say, God, you are enough for me? Just as Job has to ask himself the same question. As we have seen, and as we have said over the last nine weeks, Job has lost everything. And he comes to this pivotal point where he asks the question, God, are you enough? It is important to point out that there are other ancient Near East stories that are very similar to Job. And I point this out because these stories have a righteous person who suffers. They don't know why, and they're seeking answers. For these individuals, they have to offer sacrifices to their gods. They have to try to appease them and hope that their God will respond in a way that is good for them. But with Yahweh, with Job, there is not one shred of doubt that Job knows that God will not come through. Job knows that he will be vindicated. So God will come through. And that's where I believe that Job is at. Job, through the pain of loss and the sorrow of being abandoned, says a resounding yes. God, you are enough for me. But this is not easy. As we have seen, Job has faced much suffering. And he will continue to, after chapter 19, lob accusations at his friends and fail to trust God. But in the midst of suffering, Job is confident and about one thing. And for him to come to this one thing, it has been a process a process that we are often familiar with in our own lives. So there are ways in which we are very similar to Job, and there are ways in which we are very different from Job. But first let us talk about the ways in which we are very similar to Job and the ways in which we can relate. So how are we like Job? We experience pain and suffering the same way Job did. We know that when all those around us leave us, abandon us, and choose to reject us, it hurts. And no one ever wishes this upon themselves. There is nothing wrong with experiencing the pain of rejection. God made us to feel. God made us to be in community. God made us to have a family. And so therefore, when the people around us choose to leave us and reject us, it doesn't feel good. And that's a proper response. But therefore, we must face the true and raw emotions just as Job does. But where we and Job both go wrong is how we relate to Or how we judge our experience with God. God was not the one who was pouring out his wrath against Job. Rather, it was Satan. And so how often do we, just as Job, have something go wrong in our life, and the first thing we ask God is, why? Why did you allow this to happen to me? When something goes wrong, we all of a sudden forget that God is a sovereign God. We fail to trust him, and all of a sudden it becomes God's fault. Some might wonder, if God is truly a good God, or if he is truly in control, why are these things happening? And we forget that God truly is a good God, and that God truly is in control. We see both of these reactions in this chapter here, and the book as a whole, a reaction of pain towards suffering, and a reaction of a failed trust towards God. We see Job's abandonment from the community he so deeply cares about, The family has rejected him, and friends that offer sometimes good, but mostly selfish and ill-conceived advice. First in verses 2 to 6, which says, How long will you torment me, and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, and my error remains with myself— if indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closest net about me. I want to point out that not all of what Job's friends have said is wrong. There is a lot of truth littered throughout each of the responses to Job as you read through the book as a whole. The one thing, though, is that these guys are are Job's closest friends. And so the way the things they say this they say carries more weight and stings more deeply, especially because it's them and especially because it's incorrect. So earlier in the book Bildad and later in the book Elihu, they speak truth about God. They say God cannot pervert justice. But where where both of them go wrong and where both of Job's other friends go wrong is that uh, they cannot truly appreciate or know Job's current predicament. God and his ways have been reduced down to formulaic, easy to know, and predictable. But as we see at the end of the book in chapters 38 to 41, God's ways are not to be known by, made known by man. And man is not to assume what the purposes of God are. So Job's friends have hurt him with their words because they've done this. They have said false things. They have blamed him with no grounds. It is the lie, if you do good, then God will protect you. He will heal you, and he will never let calamity come your way. But unfortunately, we see this here in this book, and we see this in the modern context of our church today. We are not safe from it. While we have the gift of church history, we're able to see the mistakes that churches have made in the past, and we have the Bible in our language by the grace of God alone, there are still many who claim to know and love God, who tell individuals who are sick, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Or if something has happened in your life that is unfortunate, if you have enough faith, God will fix that. But when that thing doesn't get fixed, or when God doesn't heal you, the individual comes back and says, well, there must be some sin in your life that you have not confessed, so God is punishing you this way. Now let me tell you, that's nowhere in this passage or in this book. It's nowhere in the Bible. It cannot be supported. So we have to come to the realization that Job's emotions are real, and he knows this. Job knows that he is not wrong, that he will stand before his Redeemer. But it's probably one of the loneliest points of his life. The fact that these individuals are his friends make this even worse. So for me, it was the summer of 2016. I had just finished my first year of seminary in Kansas City, and I had a disagreement with a friend. And we were going to meet at Panera at 6 o'clock in the morning to talk over that disagreement to come to a mutual resolution. A third individual joined us in that meeting, and that individual in some ways had authority over me. This individual sat down with us, and he said to me, Nate, I'm going to speak four things to you, four ways in which you have failed, And you're not going to speak until I am done talking to you. So at the end of the conversation, he had said these four things. There was truth littered throughout, but some of it was not true. And he asked me, what do you think? And at this point, I'm crying so hard that all I can say is, I don't know what to think. And we get up from that meeting and leave. Before me, I feel like I have all these things that I have to work on. I have to do it all on my own with nobody to help me. I felt lonely. And my response was to isolate myself, to feel dejected, and to give up. And I'm not saying this is what Job did. As we see the entire time, Job is with other individuals. But this is what I did. And how often do we do the same thing? We desire to be in community. We desire to be helped. We know that there are areas where we fall short. But when someone comes into our life... And speaks to us in such a way where we are made aware of our failings only to be abandoned and no longer helped. It hurts, and it hurts a lot. That summer was one of the loneliest moments of my life. But God, God was near. And through the friendship of another, and through reading books like Job, Lamentations, and Habakkuk, I came to a point where I knew I had to make a decision and ask myself a question. God, are you enough for me or not? And so Job's rejection is not to stop here with his friends, but also with those in the community and his family, as we see in verses 14 through 19, which say, "'My relatives have failed me, and my closest friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy.' My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. And Job experiences more rejection, as not only those who are closest to him, his friends, but also those present within the community, reject him. Now he is not treated as a stranger, but as a social outcast. He is the guy before who the hand of Satan stretched out against him had everything he could ever want. His family was respected. He was looked to for wisdom. He had every material blessing that anyone would ever desire. But that was all taken away. And now he's at a point where nobody respects him. His wife, the one who ought to be closest to him, uh. Is, is repulsed by his breath. She will not draw near to him. His relatives have rejected him, and even the young children in the community despise him and have made fun of him. At this point, Job is helpless, and he has left to the attacks of all, even small kids. So even the ser- servants who had often had to uh, respond to him in a very quick manner have rejected him and refused to speak with him. So Job is now counted as one who is unworthy. He has been rejected as all, by all. And we might have a hard time in our modern culture understanding what Job is truly going through. I don't think any person at all experiences likes the experience of being rejected by their family or their community. But I would say many of us um, operate in a manner where we want to be known, we want to be respected, and we absolutely do not want to do this life alone. But consider the fact that Job lived in a patriarchal society. Your name was everything to you in this society. It depended on how successful your family was in the future after you passed away. It depended on the things you had during that time. So Job has it all taken away from him. He's rejected by his friends, his family, and his community. That would cause one to ask questions of, What is my purpose and why am I here? And Job has to face these very questions himself. We see at the very end of the book in Job's final appeal in 29 to 31 that Job has uh, experienced much of these sufferings and been affected by them in a very um, horrible way. But in addition to being rejected by his closest friends and the community at large, Job now faces the reality that God is warring against him, attempting to absert him and bring him down. Job believes that just as he has been abandoned by his friends, he's now been abandoned by God. So I'll jump back in the verses seven through twelve and read that section here. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from, from me my glory and taken away the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has, he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come together, come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Job believes that God has stripped him from his glory and he seeks to be his adversary. Job is like a city in these verses that is under siege warfare. And In siege warfare, what would happen is the troops, the attacking enemy would encircle the town. They would cut off the supply lines and starve out. Uh, the end of the people in the city. At some point, the army would then build a ramp that would go over the city walls and enter the city. What ensued was complete devastation. Many people were killed, people were enslaved, and nobody was left. So Job says here, I am like a city under siege warfare. God and his armies are attacking me, and I am not a city though. I am only a tent I have no one to defend me. And so he asks, Who will come to my rescue? Why will no one respond? Who will save me? Who will make this right? So in Job's current view, the one who is supposed to be God over all things is the one who is warring against him. Job believes God's army is built up against him and there will be no way of escape for him. But this is only what he thinks. This is not what he knows. Job knows something so much greater than what he currently thinks, as we'll see in the next section. We suffer and face the suffering in a very similar way to Job. I believe this is a human thing that God has so beautifully crafted into us. But when I say we, I mean those who are Christians, those who have surrendered their lives to God, and those who choose to live a life of repentance before him and follow after Jesus. The difference is that while Job had to stand on his own, own proof that he was innocent, we stand on the proof of Jesus's death and resurrection, knowing that we full well deserve the suffering. But Christ has suffered in our place. We know that our Redeemer lives. We know that God is near, and know that one day we will be vindicated as we stand before him, our Redeemer. Again, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ. So we'll read verses 20 to 22. Which says, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? And why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job is weak and does not have much left. He feels as though he is about to be finished off, or at least his friends won't be satisfied until he is finished off. As God has built up a siege ramp against him and the community has rejected him and his closest friends have lacked the ability to comfort him, Job is done. He comes to a point of decision, and he directs these verses at his friends. After the consistent questioning, the blaming for what has been done, Job asks, Why? Why have you chosen to treat me in such a way? And what will be enough for you? Will your words ever be of comfort to my soul, or do you seek to destroy me? So here Job comes to a moment, a moment in which he must make a choice. He could easily give up. He could do as his wife earlier in the book had told him to do, to give up and die, or he could fight on. So what will he do? So Job makes two appeals in this chapter. One appeal is for the pity of man, as we've already seen. And as we see now, Job makes an appeal for the pity or the justice of God. Job is convinced, based off of the previous few verses, that God has his hand extended out against him and is causing all this calamity in his life. But what Job does not realize is that it is Satan who has his hand stretched out against Job. It is Satan who has caused all this pain. Yes, God gives Satan the permission he needs, and God greatly restricts Satan. But Satan is the sole accuser here. We know that Satan shows himself as an angel of light, as we see in 2 Corinthians eleven four, 4 and that he is a great deceiver, Revelation 12-9. But Job did not know this, and how often do we not know this? How often do we look to God and blame him for the suffering that takes place in our life? Sometimes I think we do this well, though. And sometimes I think we realize quickly that Satan is an angel of light. He has come to deceive us. And so one beautiful example of this for me is my grandmother Millie. In June of 2017, my grandmother passed away at an old age and after her kidneys had failed. She had rejected dialysis. And as a result, her body was swelling all over. Her body was not filtering out the things that it was supposed to. She was in a lot of pain. And the only thing that we thought we could do was to pray for her. I got to be with her for the last few days. and one point, my cousin, my sister, and I were in her room with her, and we laid hands on her to pray over her. And through the tears that were coming out that it was so hard to speak to form words, my grandmother sat there and praised God through the pain. She had not been put on any drugs yet. And she would thank God for his goodness in her life and in our lives. So, for me, to see that, to see my grandmother sit in the midst of pain and suffering and not blame God for the things that she was going through, but rather thank God for his faithfulness towards us, that to me is what it means to trust God in the midst of suffering. So that we might not understand what is happening or why it's happening, but God should be enough for us. We are not to share our coat life and pretend that just because we're Christians, we should have a good attitude or not be affected by suffering. We do not see this in Job or even in this passage. In verse 20, Job is still bitter against God. But at the same time, as we see in 1610, Job Job knows that God is his witness in heaven. And it's here that some commentators believe that Job believes that God is both his uh, accuser and his defender. That God is the one who has caused the suffering, and God is the one who will rescue Job from the suffering. So the reason for Job's current emotional state has shifted from the loss of his fa- family and friends to the, to the accusations of those around him, to the devastation by God. And so in the midst of the darkness that seems to be enclosing around Job in this moment, Job is about to speak a light light that will come forth from his mouth, life that will shine brighter than the darkness around him. He is going to proclaim for all to know and read where his, where his hope lays. So in verses 23 and 24, Job says, Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. Job wants to guarantee that he is or he will be vindicated. So he says, Write this down and make sure it lasts forever, forever. Whether I am vindicated in life or death, let my story stand to be true. Job knows this is a guarantee. He knows that he is not at a place of being able to prove his righteousness, and this is where the permanency of the statement becomes an issue. It must be remembered. Job wants to show his friends, his family, his community and all that would come after him that he is confident in his position. He is confident that when all the facts are laid out before the court, he will be vindicated, and that he will be vindicated by his Redeemer, who lives and stands upon the earth, as we see in verses 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. The Redeemer is the one who will stand in court as Job's witness, as his defending counsel, and as God himself. In verse 26, Job revisits 20 to 21, I believe, and he confirms that he's not sure how much longer he has to live on this earth, but he knows that in life, or more likely in death, he will stand and see God. At this point, Job moves from standing on his own words and trusting in his own power to trusting God. He is convinced that if he is to die before the verdict is read, he will still be made right before his friends, and more importantly, before God. So let me encourage you with the fact that commentators in verse 27 believe that where it says, not another, it should actually be translated as stranger, which would then read, "...and my eye shall behold you not as a stranger." Which means that Job will no longer be a foreigner to God, and God will no longer be a stranger to Job. God is not alienated or unconcerned with Job, but as both Job's vindicator and his friend, God does the same beautiful transformation for us. He takes us from being his enemy, from being far off, and being an outcast, and being one who is deserving of the wrath of God. And through the adoption of sons and daughters, he makes us sons and daughters of him, the king. God has moved from our judge to our vindicator and friend. And so we must also realize when Job says Redeemer here, that he is not referring to Jesus necessarily, but he's referring to God. But for us, when we read this and we see Redeemer, our minds go to Jesus right away, and they should. This is not a wrong thing. Rather, it's a great thing to do. This is not a predictive prophecy of the Messiah that would one day come to redeem all of his people. It is a passage that shows God moved from the accuser to defender. And in many ways, this is what Jesus does for us in his death and resurrection. For each and every single one of us, before we knew God, we were an enemy of God. We were far off and we would not stand before God as the judge. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have become a child of God, no longer an enemy, but one who is loved. So as we close, I want to ask you a question, or ask a question. The question of how do we see Jesus in the midst of this? and How do we go into this Advent season knowing that the infinite who became an infant is now our Redeemer? the one who will stand before God and declare us clean and righteous and free from sin. While Job did not know that Satan was the one who had caused such calamity in his life, Job would come to know who was responsible for the things that happened in his life. And Job would also, just as we also know, that the one who is responsible for the deception, the pain, and the hurt will pay. Satan will pay the ultimate price, the final blow. The Bible tells us, especially those who are Christians, we will suffer. But what it also tells us is that Jesus will make all things right. Just as 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is going to be a punishment, a punishment given by the baby that we are about to celebrate in the coming weeks. The baby that will come back with a sword coming out of his mouth and armies of angels behind him ready to defeat sin, death, and Satan once and for all. He will be our Redeemer who will stand before us in the ways that we have been wronged. The verdict will be read and we will be vindicated. Justice will be poured out once and for all. And so as we have discussed, there are ways in which we are very similar with Job, and there are ways in which we are very different. But the biggest thing that we have hope in is that Jesus is different from Job. Jesus is far greater than Job was or ever ever will be. Where Job suffered involuntarily, Jesus suffered voluntarily— He came down to this earth to be a man. He lived a perfect life. He was arrested and wrongly accused, beaten beyond recognition, hung on a criminal's cross, and buried in a tomb for three days. But where death was not going to hold Job back from proving himself right— Even greater is the fact that death would not hold Jesus back from breaking forth to declare victory, to defeat sin, to make a way for the righteous to become righteous, for the sinner to be made clean, for those who will suffer, to in the midst of suffering stand firm and to say, Jesus, you are enough. So may we, just as Job not just know about Jesus with our minds, but may we see Jesus with our eyes. Let's be a people that in the midst of suffering are marked by the unwavering hope that we have in him and in him alone. So would you pray with me this morning for that same hope? God, thank you for the fact that when we suffer, we do not have to prove ourselves right. That we don't have to stand before others and say, but I've done these things. rather right? we can stand before you and say, Jesus did these things for me. And so we stand firm in that hope, knowing that you are a God who has loved us, has vindicated us, and one day will come back to take us home. And so as we close this book, that we would look to Job for hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of abandonment, in the midst of rejection, knowing that you are enough for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.